God's Word, take out a Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 25. Continuing our journey through the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts off and on for a little over a year now. And since the beginning of this year, we've been in the last section of the book of Acts, which began in chapter 21. We'll take us all the way to the end of Acts in chapter 28, and there are really just three things that happen in the course of those chapters, three big events anyway. We have Paul entering Jerusalem, second, we have Paul on trial, he, he faces various trials under various rulers, both Jewish and Roman, and then the final part of Acts is his journey to Rome. He is taken as prisoner by ship to Rome, and we get to that in chapters 27 and 28. Chapters 25 and 26, Paul is still in Roman custody. He is still on trial, Acts 25. I'm not going to read the whole thing up front like we typically do. We're going to walk through it um, section by section as we're considering some things from the chapter. Now, I believe one of our greatest responsibilities as a church in our mission to make disciples is to make the gospel of Jesus unmistakably clear through our public witness. So when we talk about making disciples who love God and others, what has to be central to that is at minimum making the gospel of Jesus unmistakably clear through our public witness, meaning through what we say and through what we do in the public square, at work, at home, in our neighborhoods, um, when we're at restaurants, uh, when, when you go out to coffee, the, just in, in public, our public witness, the gospel of Jesus needs to be unmistakably clear in order for us to make disciples. Through the way that we speak, through the way that we interact with others in our city, in our neighborhoods, at work, there should be no mistaking who we are and what we're all about. If they know nothing else about us, I want unbelievers in our city to know that our lives and our church are centered on the person and work of Jesus. Now we have a wonderful example of such a public witness in Acts 25. In Acts 25, we are presented with essentially the same song and dance that we encountered in Acts 24. And in fact, and you're going to probably feel this on first reading, it seems identical with the exception of a couple new characters joining the stage. But Paul's example to us is slightly different. Let's, let's look at Acts 25, starting in verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now, now if you remember... Um, there was a, a governor, a Roman governor in this region. His name was Felix. And Felix was on the stage. He was the primary character here for the Romans in Acts chapter 24. Paul was in custody, and the man who had primary authority and responsibility for Paul was the Roman governor Felix. Felix was a terrible governor. There was all kinds of madness and chaos and bloodshed that, that happened in the region under his reign. And uh, uh, Felix continued to rule, and, and he had Paul in custody for two full years. Occasionally, he would bring Paul in, and they would have conversations about Christianity and Jesus. He was trying to extort money from Paul. Um, Felix was a bad dude. Well, eventually, Felix, because he was such a bad governor, he is, he is replaced. 
He's replaced with a man named Festus. And um, he arrives in the province, we're told here, after two years of Paul being in custody. And after, after he arrived, he went up to Jerusalem. And, and here's why. Uh, Felix had made such a mess of things. The relationship between the Romans and the Jews was so tense that when Festus becomes governor, he's like, one of the first things I have to do, I have to go and visit with the Jewish leadership, and we need to set things straight. Like, I want to get off on a good foot. I, I, don't, I don't want there to be tension anymore between us. Let's figure things out. He just goes. It's a political visit. He goes to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders. He doesn't really even know very much about Paul. Paul is just another prisoner as far as Festus is concerned. Well, here's what we read in, in verse 2. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Now, you've got you to gotta appreciate the hatred that the Jewish leadership had for Paul. They've been waiting two years for this moment. Two years had passed. Paul's just in jail He's got his routine. The Jewish leaders, they have their routine. They're, they're, they're going about their business. And we have a new governor coming in. And the first thing they want to talk about, of, of everything that they could talk about with the Roman governor, they want to talk about a prisoner who, who the Roman governor probably doesn't even know. They want to talk about this prisoner. And they're like, hey, you have a prisoner, by the way, in Caesarea, and we want him moved back to Jerusalem. And Festus is like, oh, uh, nice to meet you. I'm Festus. Um, okay, so what is this? And um, so, so they, they're very upset, but they, they want him brought to Jerusalem, and they're going to do one of two things. They're putting an end to Paul. They, they, they're done waiting. They're through with this man. They're like, if, if we can convince him to bring Paul back, here's option number one. We're going to try to kill him on the way. We'll just, we'll just ambush him, kill him on the way, let that be it. If that doesn't work, put him on trial. We know how that's going to go. We've seen, we've seen that before, too. All right, so, so uh, that's their plan. So verse 4, Festus. Again, he's completely new to this. He is a pagan. He's a Roman, he's a Roman governor. He's new to the situation. He just got this job, okay? His, his desk, you know, his chair is, is you know, not, not worn out at all. He's just now stepping into this. And here we go. In verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. He's like, I can't, I, I can't send him to you without meeting the man myself. I need, I, I need to go talk to him first. I need to see him. So, but I'm going to go. I'm going to go shortly. Verse 5, so, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So he doesn't want to get off on the wrong foot with the Jews. He wants to have a good working relationship. So he says, I don't know anything about this, Paul. You guys want to, you know, bring him here and put him on trial? Send some of your men, and let's go. And let's go talk to this guy and bring your charges against him. Because, again, Festus is new to this. The charges were already brought against Paul when Felix was the governor. But now he says, all right, let's hear things afresh. Bring your charges, and we'll see what we can do. And so, so that's, that's what they do. In verse 6, after he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal, and he ordered Paul to be brought. Here we go. We're moving really quickly. Luke wants us to get there. When he had arrived, verse 7, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. I love it. They still can't prove it. They've had two years to build their case. In, in chapter 24, if you remember last week, they brought these charges against Paul, that he had started a riot, that he was a leader of the Christian movement, and that he was desecrating the temple. That, those were their three main charges. And then Felix is like, where's your evidence? And they're like, I don't know. They, and they couldn't find any, okay, evidence to support these charges. They have two years. 
to fabricate, to come up with something. And again, we see here, Luke tells us, they bring many and serious charges against Paul that they could not prove. Verse 8, Paul, he argues in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. So we don't know exactly what the charges were, but in, you know, obviously they related in some way to Paul uh, profaning the law of the Jews, desecrating the temple, profaning the temple in some way, and then also dishonoring or disobeying Caesar, committing offenses against Roman law, and he denies each of them. Verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? So again, Festus is trying to be diplomatic. He's like, uh, there's not much evidence here, but I can try the case. I think the Jews would be happy if the case was tried in Jerusalem. Let's talk to Paul. Maybe we can get this case or this trial moved to Jerusalem. And Paul, he's really savvy. He's really wise. He says in verse 10, Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. And you see what Paul's doing here. He's saying, if you're going to move the trial, if you're not going to have it here and you're going to move the trial, it shouldn't be moved to Jerusalem. I haven't done anything against the Jews. Now, if you want to evaluate whether I have somehow uh, profaned Roman law and broken Roman law, then I want to be tried in Caesar's court. So if you're going to move the trial, don't move it to Jerusalem, move it to Rome. And again, just side note, the savvy nature of Paul here. What has the Lord promised him? The Lord has promised him, hey, take courage. You will take the gospel to Rome. What did Paul want to do more than anything else? He wanted to take the gospel to Rome. And he's trusting in the Lord to get him there. And then what does he see happen right before his eyes? A door opens for him. And he says, I can get to Rome this way. Hey, you want to move the trial? Don't move it to Jerusalem. Move it to Rome. Let's go to Rome. Yeah, put me on trial over there. I'm not afraid to die. It's okay. If you find something against me and you want to put me to death, that's fine. But let's do it in Rome where Caesar is. Lots we could say here. But at this point... The new Roman governor, Festus, had a very important task on his hands. He's already approved Paul's appeal. But but he can't just put Paul in chains on a ship and send him to Rome. He can't, and, and then he shows up, and they're like, what's, what's this guy doing here? Uh, I don't know. I'm just told to take him to Rome. No, he has to write ahead. He has to write ahead to inform Caesar's court and his advisors and ultimately Caesar himself of why this man is going to Rome. He has to tell him, here's the nature of the case, and and, and it needs to be tried in Rome. And the only problem with that is Festus has no clue what's really going on. He's like, there's no evidence. There's There's nothing happening here, but all these people want this man dead. And so he has a really important task. He has to write, and he has to inform Caesar about the nature of this case, the accusations that have been brought against him, as well as his own opinion of the issue. And Festus has a lot on his plate already, so he takes his time. He waits. Look at me in verse 13. 
Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Okay, so while he's waiting, while he's trying to wrap his head around this really confusing case, he receives a visit from King Herod Agrippa, who is a descendant of the great King Herod, who, who was, you know, uh, reigning during the time of Jesus. Um, and Bernice was Agrippa's sister. Um, now, Agrippa is much more familiar with the Jews, with their religious life, and with their religious customs. Now, Agrippa is just visiting again. It's kind of a diplomatic visit, you know, heads of state, sort of, you know, kind of meeting together. Hey, you know, thank you so much. You know, we're so glad that you're now the governor. Let's talk business. Let's talk politics. So as he's here, Festus takes advantage of it. He's like, okay, good, finally. I'm a pagan. I'm, I, don't, I don't understand all this stuff. You're a little bit more familiar with the Jews and the way that they operate. Help me understand, because again, he has to write ahead and inform them of what's going on. So here's what we read in verse 14. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. I love how, notice how he summarizes this. Again, all this stuff happened in Acts 24, but notice Festus's summary. There's a man left prisoner by Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So he's like, I can't just go and place judgment on Paul. You have to come too, and you have to present your case before him. Verse 17, he continues, So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. And notice this. This is Festus's perspective. In his perspective, he's like, the, the vitriol, the anger that these men have against Paul, he must have done something unthinkable. Like, I'm kind of excited to hear this. This is really interesting. And then when they present the case, and it's all about the temple, and it's all, it's all about possible riots, and they have no evidence, he's like, they didn't bring anything. That is not how I thought this was going to go. They, they had absolutely nothing. And then listen to verse 19. It's so, it, this, this blew my mind when I first read it. This is his perspective, what he noticed, this pagan Roman leader. Verse 19. Rather, so instead of all the evils I thought I would hear about, rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Um, Festus makes this very interesting observation about Paul's case. He's essentially saying, you know, the Jews, they keep wanting to make this about the temple, and they keep wanting to make this about treason or sedition or rioting, but there's just no evidence to substantiate those claims. So the more I think about it, I, I realize there is one unspoken accusation that seems to be at the center of this case. Paul asserts that there was a man named Jesus who died and that that man was now alive. 
And there's much evidence to support this accusation because Paul talks about the resurrection all the time. That's really the issue. In the case of Paul, it was clear to Festus that even though Paul was innocent of charges of sedition and temple desecration, he was guilty of preaching the resurrection of Jesus, and that was the true source of the conflict here. Now, here's why that's interesting. This is the perspective of an outsider. This is the perspective of an, of an unbeliever. This was his perspective, not only of Paul's trial in this case, but it was his perspective of the early Christian movement as a whole. It's, a, it's interesting because Festus was a Roman and he was a pagan. As a Roman administrator, Festus didn't really care very much about theological disputes. You want to argue about your religion? Okay, fine, go do that in Jerusalem. I don't care about that here. Um, as a pagan... Festus had little to no concept of resurrection. He didn't have a theological framework for resurrection. And that's important because his conclusion that the whole case is about the resurrection of Jesus must have come not from his own preconceived notions, but it must have come from mere raw observation of facts. And, and here's the point and where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Paul spoke and lived in such a way that the resurrection of Jesus took a front row seat. The resurrection of Jesus was so central and so crucial to Paul's public witness that even a Roman pagan ruler can surmise that the resurrection is the main thing for Paul, and it's the very reason that he's in chains. Now, granted, Festus, he sounds skeptical and he sounds really frustrated, and at minimum, he knows the resurrection of Jesus is crucial to the Christian movement, even if he doesn't believe in it. Our public witness, how we live in the public square for Jesus, is tied to what Christianity actually is. You see, our public witness tells a story about Christianity. The question is, is the story going to be true or false? Are our lives going to be hypocritical, and not flowing out of the truth of the gospel, not representing the truth of the gospel, or will our lives be neat representations of the gospel that we believe? How we live and what we say in public as Christians speaks to what it means for us to be Christians. That's what we see in Paul here. So, a couple questions. As, as we, I'm going to make two points for us, but two questions. Based on how you live, on a day-to-day -day basis, what would non-believers say Christianity is mainly about if they observed your life? If they observed your life and they knew that you were a Christian, what would they be able to say without, without you know, any background as a non-believer? They don't, they don't really know the jargon. And they said, you're a Christian. Here's, here's what that probably means based on the things that you say and the things that you do. This is where we can learn from Paul. The resurrection of Jesus was crucial to his public witness. And the question for us is, how can we have a public witness that makes it impossible for outsiders in our city to miss Jesus? So two questions of, of the text. Why is the resurrection of Jesus so central to Paul's public witness? And how is the resurrection of Jesus so central to his public witness? And we'll apply both to ourselves. Um, the first thing I want us to see is that the resurrection of Jesus 
should be central to our public witness because the resurrection of Jesus is central to Christianity. Apart from the resurrection, there is no Christianity. There is no faith. There are no churches apart from the resurrection. And here's what's interesting about Festus and his understanding of the conflict between the Jewish leaders and Paul. It's that he is the only one so far to truly understand what's going on. And yet, he has the least amount of background information. He is basing all of it on what he observes in Paul's life. He, he is observing all of it on the, on the interaction, the relationship between the Jews and Paul. He discerns that even though there's all this talk about rioting and desecration, all this talk about temples and religion, there's no evidence whatsoever, so something else must be going on. And Festus, as a good detective, he says, where does the evidence take us? And even though the Jewish high priests are talking about the temple and Caesar and how Paul has offended both of them and how he's able to see through this smokescreen. And in an almost frustrated epiphany, he realizes that he's been asked to rule on a Jewish theological dispute. And that's why it made him angry. And that's why it made sense to him to send Paul back to Jerusalem. You see, Paul preached that the Jesus of Nazareth who, who most of them saw, most of them interacted with, that Jesus who was crucified and died, he preached that that Jesus was now alive, that he had been raised from the dead. And that's why the Jews are so upset. It doesn't have anything to do about rioting. It doesn't have anything to do with, you know, uh, they don't care about Rome. They don't care about Caesar and his law being profaned or anything like that. No, they don't, they don't even believe that their temple has been Desecrated. It's, it's not about that. They have a grudge with Paul because he's teaching that a man named Jesus died and rose again. And now what Festus could not have fully understood is that this dispute is so hot because Paul's claim that Jesus was now alive is more than just a, a mere theological disagreement. The Jews debated the finer points of the law all the time. Paul's resurrection preaching had turned the world upside down. You see, if the Jesus who died was actually raised from the dead, then he is the long-awaited Messiah, and he is the Lord of heaven and earth. Festus observed through Paul's public witness that the resurrection of Jesus is at the center of everything, especially Christianity. So, so Paul's public witness testified or pointed to the resurrection clearly enough for pagans to notice, and that's because the resurrection of Jesus is the crux of Christianity. It's not just one theological matter that we can dispute, you know, argue about. The resurrection is what Christianity hangs by. It hangs by the thread of the resurrection of Jesus. If you think back, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. That's it. The resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then Jesus should be worshipped as Lord. And if the resurrection is false, he was not raised from the dead, then Jesus should be rejected as a liar. It, it, it all hangs on whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead. This means that there is actually a legitimate reason for rejecting Christianity or Jesus. And that reason would be Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. And, and 
you can actually sympathize with the Jews here. The Jewish chief priest, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, they would all be justified in their anger against Paul and in their dispute with him if Jesus really wasn't raised from the dead. And they didn't believe that he was. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then Paul really was a blasphemer. Everything depends on the resurrection of Jesus. I want you to think about just two things related to Christianity and how it's a make or break when it comes to the resurrection. These things are only true because Jesus was raised from the dead. And the first relates to the death of Jesus. So because Jesus was raised from the dead, his death accomplishes redemption for us. But it's only because Jesus was raised from the dead. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is vindication for the death of Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, his death is not like everyone else's. It's different. Jesus was vindicated as the Messiah, as the one who can offer true forgiveness, as the substitutionary sacrifice when God raised him from the dead. Paul writes as much in Romans 1. God raised Jesus from the dead to prove that he had accepted Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. So the resurrection is confirmation that our guilt and our shame are removed through Jesus. Why are you forgiven of your sins? Not just because Jesus died for you, but because Jesus died for you and he rose from the dead. How are you justified before God? Because Jesus lives. How are you reconciled to God? Because Jesus lives. It all hangs on the resurrection. Okay, one more thing. Think about the future. The future. What hope do we have for the future? Our hope for the future is tied to the resurrection of Jesus. Because he was raised from the dead, we have hope for future restoration. The resurrection of Jesus is a foretaste of eternal life. When he came back from the grave, he was the first, the head of a new humanity that in him will live forever. Eternal life is only possible because Jesus was raised from the dead. And if he was not, we would have no hope of future eternal life. You see, the resurrection of Jesus marked Paul's life because apart from it, Christianity is not just less than. It's false. It's a farce. It's not true. But because Jesus was truly raised from the dead, nothing could stop Paul from living for his glory and telling the story again and again and again. Paul's entire identity was tied to the risen Jesus. His entire ministry was a personal commission from the risen Jesus. And so everywhere he went, he preached the resurrection of Jesus, no matter the consequences, whether he was in a Gentile region, he was in a Jewish region, or whether he's in a Roman prison, he is preaching the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, there is no salvation, there is no hope of redemption of past sins, and there is no future hope of restoration. But because Jesus was raised, Paul was absolutely obsessed with telling as many people about that, because that is the key. That is the key to forgiveness of sins. That is the key to a future eternal life. Paul's public witness centered on the risen Jesus because his faith depends on the risen Jesus. And the same is true for us. We should live for Jesus in the public square and the resurrection should be central to that because the resurrection, apart from it, we have no faith. But one more thing. How can we have a public witness that centers on the resurrection? 
If, our, if, if Christianity itself is centered on the resurrection, how can we live lives in the public square that highlight the resurrection of Jesus? How can we follow Paul's example? Um, first of all, your public witness is incredibly important. This is where the rubber meets the road for a Christian. It's where we really find out if we believe what we say we believe. It's where we find out if our beliefs align with our lives. And when people who aren't Christians in our city see us or think of us, what do we want to come to mind? When people think of us, they should very quickly start to think about the risen Jesus. And that's because the resurrection changes how we live our lives now. Going back to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also said, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And then he goes on to say, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. And here's what he's basically saying. He's tying a connection to the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, Since we confess and we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, we have a certain future ahead of us. And that certain future has bearing on how we live our lives now. So if the resurrection is not true, then sure, live however you want. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Live however you want if the resurrection is not true. But if it is true and Jesus really is Lord and our future really is glorious, then we must consider how to live in light of that truth right now. You see, when, when we live in light of the resurrection of Jesus, when our lives align with our belief that Jesus is alive, our words and our actions will shine a light on the risen Jesus so that he is seen in and through us. So our public witness, it will center on the resurrection through what we say and through how we live, through what we say. Um, the resurrection should be the center of what we say when we speak about our faith. So when, when you are, are talking with someone, um, I, I, I hope we're able to schedule this this year. Um, my hopes, there's, there's someone in town um, who works at Global who's a, a friend of mine who, who does a wonderful talk on what he calls kingdom conversations. And basically, he, you know, hoping to get him in to do a training, he, he will help you um, learn how to leverage ordinary conversations to get to a conversation about Jesus in a non-awkward, weird way. And, and he has a really cool tool to, to help us get there. Um, listen, I don't know how intentionally you think about this, but when, you, when you're at work or, or you're you know, out, out in town, you should be thinking actively the same way that Paul did about witnessing to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. You can do it in non-awkward, non-weird ways, but looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus. One of the easiest ways to do that is to focus your evangelism on the resurrection. It's one of the easy, easiest ways. I'm going to give you an example in just a second. But a lot of times we're afraid to talk about Jesus, talk about the gospel, even when a door is clearly open for us. You have someone saying like, man, I, I've really messed up my life. I, I don't know where I can turn. And you're like, oh, man. Oh, should I, should I go there? And, you're like, and then you're like, I don't know. This isn't the time. I don't, I don't know. And you're like, man, I hate that. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
that's rough. <laughs> heard that you know and you, and you just let it go and then you go home and you're like why why did I do that I mean sometimes doors are just open really easily like that I'm going to share a weirder one that happened to me uh, a couple of weeks ago but when you focus on the resurrection it helps and you don't sound weird so in a situation like that someone's like I just don't know where to turn my life is falling apart everything is going terribly be like listen I understand that that's how this world is this this world is full of that and you're not coming to them and saying i'll tell you what brother i'll tell you what sister if you just believe in jesus all them problems they just vanish they go away you say no 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 um we believe in a man who died and rose again and we believe that one day he's going to return he's going to set all that right and it's not going to be like that one day because he rose from the dead the resurrection helps us in evangelism you think about common objections to christianity common objections and it scares us to death you're sharing the gospel with someone or even even your kids come home with an objection or a question you're like oh man you know i'm really not ready for this pastor avery let me just call him real quick and he can give us an answer um but common objections like you're talking about you know the gospel or christianity and someone says i don't understand you christians it seems really silly to me that you believe that there is a person that you call jesus who is both god and man and that's so crazy and out there that I just, I, I can't believe any of that. And, you know, you start thinking of, oh man, I should have read more theology. I should, have, I should have paid attention, you know, in some equipping classes. How can I answer this? And then you try, go home and do all this research about, you know, uh, the incarnation and what it means for, for Jesus to be both God and man. And you come ready for a defense. When really all you have to say is, you know, honestly, that really blows my mind too. I do believe that. I have a hard time understanding it as well. But here's something that helps. We, here's what we believe before we believe that Jesus is God and man, that he died and he came back from the dead. And I gotta be honest with you, it helps me. <laughs> it helps me to have, have a doctrine that I struggle to understand if I'm able to believe that a man died and then took his life back from the dead. And if he says that he is both God and man, I'm gonna give him a thumbs up on it and say, you got it, my man. I believe you. Don't fully understand that, but, uh, but I'm with you. The resurrection, a, a common objection. I struggle to believe in miracles. I just don't understand. You guys, I, I just don't think miracles are a thing. Okay, that's, that's, you know, that's cool. I know there are a lot of people who struggle to believe that miracles are even possible as a category. They just outright reject miracles. It's like, well, what do you do with the fact that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that attested to seeing Jesus dead and buried and then seeing Jesus alive? Again, it centers on the resurrection. You take these conversations that could turn into a battle where you're defending the faith and they're attacking, and you start taking them to the person of Jesus. You point them to the resurrection. Christianity feels too exclusive. Or have you read the Old Testament? By the way, guys, if you're keeping up in the reading plan, it's getting a little nutty um, in, in Leviticus, is it not? It's crazy in some places. And you read some of that stuff, and then you get to Numbers, and you're reading some of that stuff, and you're like, I can't believe that's in this book, you know, because you just hadn't read it before. And, and people have objections. And it's like, sure, we can talk about all of that stuff. But you can't reject Christianity on the basis of something you don't like in the Old Testament if there was a man who died and rose from the dead. You see? When you center what you say on the resurrection in evangelistic conversations, listen, I, I, I was talking to a guy, a friend of mine in Tupelo, I actually got uh, his permission to share this story. Um, 
I was talking with him. Um, uh, I'm, I'm in a lot of these conversations on a monthly basis. Um, not exactly like this one. This one's worth sharing. Um, we were talking, and he was like, he was like, Matt. He was like, man, like what? What would it take for you to no longer believe in Jesus? Like, you know, or your faith? I think he said, like your faith or Christianity. Like, what would it take for you to believe? Because he's like, I just don't, I just don't buy it. But you do. What would it take for you to be convinced otherwise? There are a lot of smart people out there who just reject Christianity or even a concept of God. What would it take? Because you believe it. And he was like, he was going through all these different options, and the coolest one he shared was, so let's say that there is this hyper-intelligent alien civilization. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. This is what he said. That, that comes down to Earth. They come down to Earth. They're a hyper-intelligent alien civilization. They come down to Earth. Would the existence of aliens cause you to stop having faith in, in God and I said no it wouldn't and he was like huh okay he was like other people say that differently and they just like argue about aliens with me and I was like no no I mean I'm, you're saying if that happened you're saying if that actually happened in time a hyper intelligent uh, alien civilization comes down to earth and would that cause me to no longer believe no it wouldn't that's not enough I was like, okay, what if that hyper-intelligent alien civilization told you because they know because they have all the intelligence that it is false and my question back to him was, did Jesus rise from the dead or not in that, in that situation? Because if they're telling me that Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, I'm done with it. I'll quit. I'll quit believing. But if Jesus rose from the dead, it doesn't matter how hyper-intelligent this fictional alien civilization is. It doesn't matter. Jesus rose from the dead. And it took, it, it took him, he was like, man, I got to think about that one. He was like, so it's, it's all about the resurrection for you guys? I was like, it's pretty important. It's, it's pretty important. It's crucial. It's the crux. And I try to make it the crux of my, of my public witness. That when people think of me, they're like, that's the guy who believes that Jesus rose from the dead. Would you, is it, it'd be nice to be that guy at work, would it not? That's the guy that believes Jesus rose from the dead. Listen, it's through what we say. We, we witness to Jesus through what we say. We focus on the resurrection. One last thing. We also, our public witness centers on the resurrection through how we live. Now, this is harder to see, but we should be living as those who have also experienced resurrection in Christ. We should live as those who have been raised with Christ. We did a whole sermon series on it last year. We have been raised with Christ. This means that the resurrection of Jesus creates something in us. It creates present realities just as much as it does future hopes. When we think about the resurrection, what do we typically think about in terms of how it applies to us? Well, that means that death has been defeated, and one day we're going to live forever with Jesus. We are going to be raised from the dead just as Jesus was, and that's absolutely true. But Paul believed the resurrection was even more powerful than we can imagine. The resurrection of Jesus opens for all of his followers a new life, a new identity, a new reality. And by faith in Jesus, we not only look forward to resurrection, we live in resurrection right now. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, he made it possible for us to experience spiritual resurrection even before we experience physical resurrection. We are new creations. And when you live at work, at home, in our neighborhoods, 
in the city, when you live as a new creation, reflecting the very nature and character of Jesus, when you are loving and you are being merciful and you are being gracious with other people, you are testifying through your public witness that Jesus is alive. And I'm not even saying you do all that stuff for the opportunity to tell someone something. I'm saying you do all that stuff because it's who you are now. It's who you are. And you are showing the risen Jesus to them through who you are, through your actions, through the way that you love other people. So you're not just doing that so that maybe they'll say, I used to hear this all the time in youth group um, uh, growing up. It's like, you, you do good things to people so that they'll ask you and then you tell them, hey, the reason I'm doing that is because of Jesus. And it just felt so weird, you know, to, it's like, so I'm not just supposed to love them because that's what I'm supposed to do. It's like, no, 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 you're supposed to love them so that they'll ask you a question and then here's the answer that you give them. And it just, it feels weird. No, we do those things because it's who we are. We have been raised with Christ. You see, the ultimate goal of resurrection life is to reflect the resurrected Jesus. Knowing that your life is in Christ, this language from Colossians 3, that our life is hidden in Christ, puts us on a path toward greater holiness. And so even though we're prone to reverse the path and we think that we have to, to behave well or we have to perform or we have to be holy in order to receive new life, the opposite is actually true. Through the resurrection of Jesus, we are granted new life by our faith in him. So by thinking of ourselves as new creations, we start to live as new creations. We start to reflect the nature and the character of Jesus in the way that we interact with other people. That's how Paul lived while he was in Roman custody. That's how he lived. That's how he lived while he was on trial. The risen Jesus could be seen even by a Roman pagan ruler like Festus. The risen Jesus could be seen in Paul mainly because Paul testified to Jesus not only with his words, but also through his actions, his disposition, the way that he interacted with others. And he did all that because Paul had really and truly been raised with Christ. So we will display the resurrection of Jesus through our actions every time we demonstrate the character of Jesus. Close with a couple questions. I'll pray for us. Is it obvious to outsiders that our church and that our individual lives are centered on the person and work of Jesus? If you ask someone in our city, what's that church all about? If they say anything other than, if they don't very quickly, you know, within the series of a few prompting questions, get to, yeah, those people are obsessed with Jesus, we're falling short. That's what we want to be known for. People who are united to Jesus by faith, who love him and want to live for him in our city. Is it clear to others that we are who we are and that we do what we do because Jesus is alive? Let's resolve this morning, this week, this month, this year to showcase the risen Jesus through our words and through our actions. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for this is 